Welcome to Come and Reason, a podcast about life, ministry, and God's continuing work in the minds of His people. I'm your host, Joe Henson, and this podcast is presented by DeclaringGlory.com. In this episode, we will consider the fifth and final Thanksgiving message that was recently presented to the congregation of Trinity Bible Church. Since this was a Sunday morning sermon, it will be a bit longer than the others, but I pray it will serve us well as we consider a biblical theology of Thanksgiving from Colossians chapter 3. Let me ask you to take your Bibles this morning and let's turn to the book of Colossians. Colossians, I have not said that for some time. I've said Hebrews for many weeks. This morning, I'd ask you to turn to the book of Colossians. As most of you know well, today is a special day for us as a church. For years now, the Sunday before Thanksgiving has been set aside as a day that we gather and worship and fellowship and praise the Lord together as a congregation, very intentionally. This year, I decided to start this celebration of God's grace just a bit early. Four weeks ago, in fact, I began a series of midweek devotionals on the subject of biblical gratitude and thanksgiving. We have spent our midweek gatherings uh, before we pray, wrestling with realities, with the goal of preparing our hearts and minds for our celebration of thanksgiving this week. The first four messages in this series were these, Thanksgiving, what is it? We spent some time wrestling with that thought from Psalm 100, and then we considered ingratitude, fruit of unbelief. Romans chapter 1, the Apostle Paul says that those who refuse to believe what God has revealed to them about himself, those who refuse to acknowledge him as God, are also unthankful. Ingratitude is a fruit of unbelief. We looked at that same idea from a different perspective in the next week and considered ingratitude fruit of entitlement. And from Luke 17, the story of 10 lepers who were healed and only one who returned to give thanks, we considered this principle that so often our thanksgiving is hindered because at the end of the day, if we're honest, we're just proud people. We actually believe we deserve life better than we have it. And when finally the sovereign blesses us, there's not a heart of thankfulness. There's a heart of, well, it's about time. I've deserved this all along. And he's just now getting around to blessing me. Ingratitude is actually a fruit of a heart of entitlement. I believe I deserve it. The last thing we considered last Wednesday night was this, gratitude, the will of God. It's the will of God. The scriptures are plain about this reality that this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you and concerning me that we would be a people who give thanks to our God. And we talked about it Wednesday night and we just said, you know, many of us would say, if God would just show me his will, I would give my life to doing it. And then God says something simple like this, give thanks in everything, this is my will. And we say, well, that's not quite what I was talking about. Show me where to go to school, show me who to marry, show me what kind of car to buy, Uh, show me what I need to do with my life, but don't, don't tell me just to give thanks or to be holy or to be a part of sanctification or evangelism. It's, I want the big stuff, not this stuff. No wonder we Don't seem to find the will of God in the big stuff if the little stuff that he's told us are his will, we ignore. 
And so we considered Wednesday night that this is the will of God for his people. As I mentioned, the goal of this series has been to help prepare our hearts and our minds for an intentional celebration of Thanksgiving. Uh, Not merely a a season that comes and goes, kind of sneaks up on us. It's tucked in between other holidays we enjoy. And so, so, you know, it, it doesn't quite get the attention that the others do because we're so busy about other things. No, our goal here in the previous four messages really was to build to this Sunday when we gather like this to praise and honor the Lord together. We want to think rightly on days like today. And on every day. This morning then I want to take up this subject in addition to the first four. And I want to consider this idea. Giving thanks in everything. Giving thanks in everything. I think most of us would acknowledge that concept is a challenging one. The idea that in everything that happens in all of life, in every circumstance, in all that we do, and all that we say, we would be a people who are filled with, and those deeds and words and thoughts are flowing from a heart that is grateful to God. It's far more easily talked about than done. We, we know that. We would acknowledge that reality But what I want to do this morning with that stated title is I want to direct your attention to a single passage of Scripture that I believe will serve us well in helping to shape a truly biblical, what I'm going to call a theology of thanksgiving. I think at times when we make a statement like that, there are those who would say, isn't that what pastors do? They throw theology in front of everything, right? A theology of (laughs) But here's the problem. We tend to think that you and I can live any number of ways in our lives separate from or distinct from or in some way maybe divorced from God. But friends, none of us, none of us ever in any part of our lives live independent of God. In fact, the apostle, when arguing to those still outside of Christ, said we live and move and have our being in him. If you and I don't have a theology for everything, we're missing it. Everything connects to our beliefs concerning God, what we know of God, what we believe about God, how we respond to that knowledge of God. And when we sit back and say, well, I just want to feel a little more thankful. That's what I want to do at this time of year. If you as a Christian do not have a theology of thanksgiving, you will not be thankful. I will not be thankful. Unless I anchor that thanks, that gratitude in what I know to be true about God. So this morning, I want to give us one passage that I believe gives us a flow of thought that builds to thanksgiving. But it intentionally builds a foundation that gives us a theology of thanksgiving. So with that framework in our thinking, then let's just read down through this passage in Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3, I want to begin at verse 1. I'm going to read down to verse 17, okay? I want you to see the flow of this passage, and then we'll work our way through portions of it this morning. Colossians chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. Here's what the Apostle Paul writes. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. 
When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, Kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. I want to acknowledge at the beginning this fact, friends, that this passage is far more full of truth than I can even attempt to cover exhaustively this morning in a single sermon. So I'm not even going to try to cover everything that's here. My goal is not to be exhaustive this morning. Instead, what I want to do is is do my best to capture the flow of thought and the high points that are found in this passage. As if I were to step back with you almost like a tour guide looking at a, at a range of mountains and I want to show you some of the peaks and I want to show you how they build and I want to show you where they're headed and what they point to, okay? That's my goal as we look at this passage this morning. With that stated goal then, I think it's important for us to remember as we begin that Colossians 3 is preceded by a couple of chapters of inspired scripture. The Apostle Paul did not begin this letter in chapter 3. We began it a little bit earlier, obviously, chapter 1. Let me quickly just point out the fact that Paul wrote the book of Colossians to to accomplish a specific goal. He, He wanted to actually cover two main things in his book. Number one, Paul wanted to combat error. There were things creeping into the thinking of professing believers in Colossae that were not quite right. And he wanted to correct the error of their thinking The problem was the errors creeping in were often related to Christ himself. So not only did Paul want to correct error or combat error, he wanted to exalt Christ. Exalt Christ. Those were his goals as he wrote this letter to the Colossians. And in the first two chapters of this book, as is his practice in all of his letters, Paul builds a a theological case for the applications that he wants to make in the final chapters. This is just the way Paul's books are broken down. The first couple of chapters typically are are filled with dense and deep theology. 
high and exalted theology that point us to God and to Christ and the gospel. And then he turns on a hinge, as it were, and usually around the middle of the book or the last third of the book, and he begins to really spell out the application that's here. So by jumping in at chapter 3, then we're actually considering a very practical portion of this book. But I want you to see that the main theological argument of the book is about Christ himself. It's Christology, the doctrine of Christ, and the implications of the gospel that flow from what Paul taught about Christ. Very quickly, let me just show you in one paragraph Paul's main thrust of his argument in the book of Colossians. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 15, writing of Jesus, he says this, Christ Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister." In that one paragraph, you see the centrality of Christ and everything that Paul is teaching, and he is making, a, making it clear that Christ is to be exalted above all. He is to be preeminent. And with that background established, then I want you to notice where we jumped into the book. Go back to chapter 3, look at verse 1. Notice how Paul takes up that same idea in our text. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Friends, it's important for us to understand that the way that Paul uses the word if at the beginning of this passage is not the way we typically use the word. We read if and we say, well, maybe it'll happen and maybe it won't. But friends, the word if, as it's used in this text, communicates a reality rather than an uncertainty. In fact, the way that this word is used would maybe more more accurately to our understanding be rendered since then you have been raised with Christ. He's writing to people who are in Christ and he's saying to these, hey, you're in him? then this is true of you. In other words, this could be since. The the opening verses actually rehearse implications of the gospel. This is not question marks. Is this true of people who are in Christ? Now, there may be some among them who aren't in Christ, but he's saying to those who are, this is true of you. In fact, notice what he traces in these first few verses. It's like he's tracing the scope and the sequence and the flow of the gospel. In verse 1, he tells them of their initial regeneration. You've been raised with 
Christ. In verse 2, he talks about their ongoing sanctification. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. In verse 3, he goes on to talk about our mysterious union with Christ. You've died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. In verse 4, he then goes to the the ultimate glorification of believers. When Christ appears, you'll be with him in glory. Friends, these truths are not maybes for the Christian. These truths are certainties for the Christian. And he's saying, those who are in Christ, this is true for you. And it's on the basis of the gospel and the certainty of it that Paul then teaches us what he does in the rest of the chapter. He actually calls us to behave in light of the certainties of the gospel. It's as if his argument goes something like this. Since you have been saved, since you have been united with Christ, since you, have been san- you are being sanctified, since you will ultimately be glorified, then participate with God in the process, in the practice, and in the product of sanctification. Since all of this is true, the gospel, then partner with God in the process of sanctification. You say you believe this. You say this is yours. You say you are in Him. All right. If you're in Him, this is true for you. Then live like it is what Paul is saying. And I want to use the balance of our time this morning to just give you some serious, uh, to give some serious consideration to three ideas that are in this. The three ideas I just noted. Look with me at the first point this morning. I want you to see the process of biblical change. The process of biblical change. The fact of the matter is some of us hear what we just did, that if this is true, if the gospel is true and it has saved me, that it's going to be doing a work, it's going to be accomplishing some things. And some of us sit back and we go, but I I just don't think I can change. Well, if you're in Christ, that's not true. Because if you're in Christ, everything changes. But we have to ask practically, how does change happen? Does it happen by sitting on our hands, right? Or sleeping on our Bibles? Does it happen by just living our lives and hoping maybe the Spirit of God shows up every now and then and does a miraculous work? What, what, what is the process of biblical change? How does God sanctify a people? What's well, exactly what Paul is addressing in this chapter of Colossians. In fact, there's a parallel chapter to this one. Ephesians chapter 4 is the parallel to Colossians chapter 3. Some of you may know the words from Ephesians 4 a little bit better than these. Let me read to you just a few of those verses. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 17, what do we read there? Now this I say, Paul says, and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus to put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. There's a pattern of biblical change laid out for us here. 
And I don't want you to miss the three parts of the process that he gives us here. What he spells out for us, first of all, is removal. He says, put off the old self. There's a removal involved. There's a a putting to death things that, that don't look like Jesus. There's an intentional eschewing things, changing patterns of behavior, saying no to the flesh in areas where we've always said yes. There's a removal. Put off the old self. But the second thing he gave us in that passage is renewal. Not only removal, but renewal. He said, be renewed in the spirit of your minds. You see, this is the key. Everything changes on the inside. I think differently. Therefore, I live differently. Remove, renew. The third thing he tells us is this, replacement. He says, put on the new self. You've got removal, you've got renewal, you've got replacement. This is exactly what he spells out for us here in Ephesians chapter 4. Interestingly enough, as we've come to Colossians chapter 3, Paul actually teaches the same principles, the same exact process of change. You see, the principle of removal is found in verse 5 of our text that we just read. He said, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. And he goes on to describe for the next three verses the kinds of things that we're supposed to put off. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. And then he talks about lying and and, and division and the other things that are there. He spells out for us what this removal looks like. Put it to death. Stop, Stop playing with sin. Stop holding on to things that don't look like Christ. Put it to death. It's removal. The principle of renewal is found in verse number 10 of our passage in Colossians 3 when he says, and have put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Being renewed in the spirit of your minds, what he said in Ephesians 4. Now he says the knowledge of the creator is actually changing the way we think so that we then live differently in response to how we think. We find the principle of replacement in verse 12 where he says then again, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. The same thing he says in Ephesians 4, he says in Colossians 3, thus they are parallel passages as we study the scriptures. Now brothers and sisters, I think this is plain to us from the passage That this is the process by which God changes his people from what they once were in the flesh to what he intends for them to be by his grace. This is how he changes people from what they were to what he wants them to be. Removal, renewal, replacement. Practically speaking, this is how sanctification works. But it leaves us with a question. Are we willingly, joyfully, submissively, and consistently participating with him in this process? Are we participating with him? Or might we have to admit the fact that we are actually and practically resistant to the process of biblical change? We read his word. He tells us what to put off, and almost like a a petulant child, we clench our fists and we stomp our feet, and while we would never do so so brashly or shake our fist in the face of heaven, we live this way. No, 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 this is mine. God, you cannot have it. I will not put it off. 
I won't think differently. I won't put on things you've told me to put on. See, we, we don't have that attitude. We're not that crass in our speaking. And yet the reality is all of us know there are areas of our lives where God has said put off and we've said no. And we've been saying no for years. There are things that his word says that are supposed to change the way we think and we've just said, you know what, I like how I think. That's why I live like I live. I'm not going to change my mind. It doesn't matter how many preachers say it. It doesn't matter how many podcasts pronounce it. It doesn't matter how many times my spouse says it to me. It doesn't matter how many times my kids complain. It doesn't matter how many times the Spirit of God convicts me. I will not change my mind. And we continue to think like we think for a long time. There are things that God has just said, this is what I want in your life. This is what it looks like to put on Christ. And we've just said, you know what? I think I look like enough like Christ already. I'm okay, like I am. I don't need to change anymore. And while we would not admit, I think, such a stern spirit or such strong language in the way that we've resisted, if we're honest, I think most of us would have to acknowledge there are plenty of ways and plenty of times and plenty of places and plenty of areas that we are just resisting the process of change rather than participating with God. In the way he says he changes people from what they were in their flesh to what he's making them by his grace. Friends, I gotta ask the question, are you participating with God in the process of change? I told you we need to start with this one. We need to consider this process of biblical change. But the second thing I want you to see is this. I want you to consider the practice of putting on Christ. The practice of putting on Christ. You see, after laying the theological and practical foundation for his teaching in this passage, the apostle goes on to list a number of character traits along with some practical applications of them. He actually talks about these things that reproduce the image of Jesus in his followers. And I want you to notice what we see in verse 12 once again. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. He just starts to name character traits, five of them in particular. We don't have time to, to, to follow these all the way through the scripture this morning. We gotta keep moving. But friends, if we could, each one of these is worthy of its own sermon. If we were to just stop and chase them through scripture, I just wanna define them quickly and we've gotta keep moving, okay? What's he talking about when he says compassionate hearts? Well, compassionate hearts refers to a soul deep sympathy, a pity, a, a mercy toward the suffering, the genuinely needy around us. It's not the heart that looks at somebody who's struggling and feels nothing. And yet I, 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 I sense that, I see that, I observe that, and even in my own heart at times, I know what it's like to look at someone who is suffering and to feel next to nothing. Because I got enough of my own problems. Been there? What, another prayer email from church? I mean, how many needs can a church, one church have, right? Like, like another email? Uh, something else to think about? Another prayer meeting? Another request? I mean, if we're not careful, right, there's a heart that just rises up and goes, I got enough to worry about. I don't need to know about another need. What does he say 
You don't naturally demonstrate a compassionate heart, so put one on. Put it on. A response to those in need that feels something and does something to help. Compassionate hearts. He talks about kindness. Kindness refers to genuine concern for another's needs that's as real and deep as if that concern was for my own need. So many times we talk about kindness, but it's kindness in word, right? Not in in deed. What changes kindness in word to kindness in deed? It's when I actually feel their need as deeply as I feel my own needs. Because you and I don't struggle to work for our own needs. But we struggle to do things about anybody else's needs. Why? Because they're not my needs. This kind of kindness, it's acts, it acts in response to somebody else's need. I feel for them as deeply as I feel for myself. Humility is the next word. It, it's the opposite of, it's the antidote to, the kind of self-love that, that, that poisons relationships, that motivates hypocrisy, the kind of thing that, that means I've always got to be covering myself rather than opening up myself to others. This is no, this is a humility that takes the low place, that realizes Christ's name is at stake. It's not about me. And we can interact in relationships humbly because it's not about me, what I think, what I know, what I want, what I like. It's not about me. Humility takes the low place and says it's about Jesus and it's about others. Meekness here refers to a gentleness that's willing to suffer injury rather than inflict injury on another. Uh, Some have called this strength under control. I could do something to hurt them, but I won't. I won't. I'll cease from responding in a way that would be injurious, that would hurt them. I'll actually suffer wrong rather than do wrong. Patience refers to a long-suffering spirit that's not short-tempered. It's not resentful. It's not vengeful toward others. Take the the biblical term, long-suffering. It suffers long. Suffers long. That's just five words, right? That's just five character traits. And I don't know about you, but it's like we could just have an invitation right now. Just those five words. This is an amazing list of what we're being called to by the Apostle Paul. And he just fires them off rapid rapid fire, one after another. He, He doesn't even preach a long sermon. He just puts them in a sentence and says, are you in Christ? Then put these on. Look like Jesus. Don't just talk about it. Be like your Lord. That's what he's calling us to. Friends, these truly shape one's character to represent Christ well in a world that's not naturally given to these traits. In fact, you don't find these just naturally in the world. These are supernaturally produced by the Spirit of God in the hearts of his people. It's what we're called to be putting on by his grace. Having laid out those five character traits, Paul then goes on to to explain what it looks like in the church when these things actually get put on. Look again, verses 12 and following, what does he say? Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. So you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. 
In short, this kind of Christ-like character in our relationships works itself out in three categories when it comes to expressions within the relationships within the church. The Apostle Paul is saying this shows up, first of all, if this is really in us, if this is really what we're putting on, it's going to look like three things. What does he say, first of all? It's going to look like forbearance. He says, bearing with one another. The bearing with here, it refers to endurance in spite of difficulties, in spite of threats, in spite of injuries, in spite of complaints. And we hear words like injuries, complaints, threats, difficulties, and we think, man, that, yeah, that kind of thing, the world hurls those all the time. But I got a question. Does he say bear with the world? He says, bear, bear with one another. He says, if you stick around long enough in a place where people are fallen and sinful, you're going to be hurt. Someone's going to do something to you you don't like. You're going to feel overlooked. You're going to feel maligned. You're going to feel cut in some way. You're going to feel injured. And what does he say? If you are like Christ, if I am like Christ, we're going to endure in that relationship even when hurts come. We're not just going to get up and run away. We're going to bear with each other. Think about how injured Christ was by our sinfulness. And he remains faithful. Bearing with one another. Forbearance is the first way this shows up. The second way it shows up is in forgiveness. Forgiveness. He said there in verse 13, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. You see, according to Paul, it's absolutely essential to remember the fact that forgiving each other or not doing so reflects on the forgiveness we have received or not received ourselves. Remember Jesus' words, if you forgive, your Father will forgive you. If you do not forgive, the Father will not forgive you. What was he saying, friends? If you and I have truly been forgiven, then we must forgive. For those who do not forgive demonstrate that they have not been forgiven. This is a sobering, sobering reality. He calls us to forbearance. He calls us to forgiveness. But the third way he says these things will show up is in fellowship. He says put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. During his earthly ministry, our Lord was clear about the fact that the two greatest commandments in all the scriptures were these, love God and love people. Love God and love people. Now, according to Paul, that kind of Christ-like love is what binds together everything in perfect harmony in the church. This is what brings the, the, the people of God together as they ought to be brought together. Once again, I think it's important for us to remember the fact that this list written by Paul is not exhaustive. It's just five character traits in this passage. It's not as if there aren't other things that need to be put on, but in this particular passage, these are the things he calls us to. Paul's point is clear, I think. Those who are truly in Christ come to look more and more and more like Christ as they willingly joyfully, submissively, and consistently participate in the ongoing process of sanctification. There's more to all of this. We've seen the process of biblical change. We've seen the practice of putting on Christ. But the last thing I want you to see this morning is this. I want you to see the product of Christ-like character. 
Because I think if we're not careful, we all tend to think, well, of course, of course that's happening. But we have to ask, is it showing up as he says it will show up in his own? You see, after telling us to put on the character of Christ, he now tells us what that will look like in verses 15 and following. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your heart to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus giving thanks to God the Father through Him. What does He say? Well, those who are doing what He's called us to, putting on the character of Christ, will also, He tells us first, let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts. The peace of Christ is actually the, the working out of the peace we have with God, the peace of God. Now, our peace with God produces the peace of God or the peace of Christ in relationship. Simply put, he's telling us that those who truly have peace with God are to live at peace with others in this life. It's going to show up in our relationships. The term rule actually means that believers are to live in such a way that the the peace of Christ guides the way that they think and make decisions, that that we don't just do our own thing and hopefully maybe it'll work out. No, there's actually a guidance to how we make decisions It means that we're to submit ourselves to the peace of Christ actively. In other words, we we should ask questions of ourselves like this. Is the choice I'm about to make, are the words I'm about to say, is this thing I'm about to do consistent with the fact that I am now at peace with God through Christ? More than that, will this choice I'm about to make promote the peace of Christ in the lives of the people around me? Does this actually, what I'm going to do, what I'm going to say, how I'm going to live, does it demonstrate I'm right with God? I've been made right with God by Christ. And does it promote that same kind of peace in the lives of others who are watching me live, who are listening to my words, who are interacting with me in this area of my, my life? Friends, stated plainly, believers who genuinely have peace with Christ have the peace of Christ ruling in their own hearts and they will live in unity and harmony with those around them to the best of their ability by the grace of God. This is what it means. Let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts but we'll also let the word of Christ dwell in us richly. We need to understand that the word of Christ refers both to the the revelation Christ brought, the writer of Hebrews said God spoke through his son, and also the revelation about Christ that comes to us from the scriptures. In context, as you study what Paul is writing here, we don't have time to chase it all today, but the phrase, the word of Christ, we th- it seems to be uh, best understood as being used in our text as a synonym for the whole of Scripture. Specifically, the way that the Scriptures tell us of Jesus and the Gospel. This is what he's talking about, this word of Christ. And Paul is telling us, notice that this word must dwell in us richly. Not merely that we have a copy of it in our house or we go to a church that might preach it. It dwells in us richly. It's more than knowing someone who knows the Bible, right? 
It's more than kids knowing that my parents believe this stuff. It's that it, the word of Christ, is coming to dwell in you and in me. The word dwell means to live in, to be at home in. And richly is the idea of thoroughly or pervasively. Nothing in our lives is untouched by the word of Christ. Nothing is uninfluenced by the word of God. Simply put, Paul is calling on believers to let the word take up residence and be at home in their lives, in their hearts, their minds, their lives, how they live. This reality to be so pervasive that the truths of Scripture should permeate every aspect of a believer's life. Because this means that God intends for every thought, every word, every action to be influenced and governed by the truth of Scripture as it takes up residence in our hearts and in our minds and in our lives. Did you notice the every, every, every? Because most of us are satisfied if a couple or a few are influenced. Wow, that was better than last week. Okay, progressively better, yes, but what is he calling us to? Lives saturated by the word, completely soaked in, completely influenced by nothing that I say, nope, not this one, this one's mine. No. The word has come to be at home in us. And it fills up our lives. What's more, God intends each and every believer to not just select a few, uh, not just to select few leaders in the church, but each and every believer to be so filled with the truth of God's word that they lovingly speak the truth to each other in their lives with faithful and consistent regularity. In fact, he talks about this, that we do so with, with singing, teaching one another. Can I just for a moment remind you all of something? And I don't mean this to be in any way cross with you. I just want you to think with me. Our worship services start at 9 a.m. And the reason I say that is this. I think if we're not careful, we begin to think that the real important part of what we do starts around 9.30 when pastor gets up to preach. But what does he say? The word is to be so filling up your lives that you cannot wait to get here to teach each other when you sing. Because we know that what we do here in our worship gatherings is so vitally important. It's what we've all been called to do. Not just come here, one guy talk, but to all of us be teaching one another in this place because the word is filling us all up. You see, when we gather on Sundays, we have an opportunity to proclaim to those around us, I believe this too! This is my God. This is my Savior. And that's what we do when we sing. It's fascinating, I had someone note to me recently that there are very few places outside of the local church anywhere in this world that you will find people, particularly in the United States culture, that you will find people who sing. They go to concerts to listen to other people sing, but they don't sing. That may be the national anthem for those who still know the words and can carry a tune, but fewer and fewer even do that. The fact of the matter is we don't tend to sing and that finds its way into the church. And what we think is we show up for the, for the lecture. We show up for the, the important stuff that goes on up front. But brethren, do you understand that from the moment you and I decide to come together before we've ever left our home, the important stuff has begun. 
And I wonder if you believe, like the scriptures call us to, that everything we do from the moment you decide to come to the moment you decide when you're going to leave and how you're going to go and who you're going to speak with and what you're going to do, all of it's important, all of it's vital. Why? Because the word is to dwell richly in all of us, not just a couple of us up front, but in all of us. And it's to dwell in us so richly that it comes out of all of us in our singing in our fellowshipping, in our conversing. This is Christ's design for his people. I want you to notice this, friends. Not only does he say, let the peace of Christ and let the word of Christ, but then he says, let the name of Christ be honored in word and deed. The argument here is that God's people who have God's word dwelling richly in them will live for a cause that is bigger than themselves. It won't be about making sure they're comfortable and they're happy and they've got what they want. That's not the end of what they live for. No, it's about something bigger than themselves. Notice what he says in verse 17. Whatever you do, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Simply put, to do everything in the name of Jesus is to live and to speak and to think and to act in ways that are completely consistent with who he is, with what he wants, In other words, to do everything in the name of Jesus is to live a life that represents him well and that ultimately brings him glory. Friends, it must be noted as well that Paul says here, do everything. Not just live and see if or hope that everything ends up glorifying Christ. There's an intentionality here that determines in advance what I am going to do, I am going to do for the glory of Jesus. What I am going to say, I am going to say for the glory of Jesus. How I am going to live, I am going to live for the glory of Jesus. It's not I live and hope it brings him glory. It's I do everything that he might be glorified. There's an enormous difference between those two. And he calls us to do everything to that end. You see, Paul commands believers to think ahead and to purposely live in such a way that everything they do is done for the purpose of honoring and glorifying Christ. And at the end of the day, it's the name of Christ that is at stake as his people speak and live their lives here on earth. Now, at this point, some of you are saying, I thought you said the title of this sermon was give thanks in everything. This is the Thanksgiving Sunday after all, right? Where's the Thanksgiving? I'm glad you asked. Because I want you to note the end of each of the three verses that we just read. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. How? Giving thanks to God the Father through him. Friends, this is amazing. And this is what I hope will lead us into our time of praising together in a few moments. Three times in three verses, we are called to be thankful. 
And three times in three verses, we are reminded that everything we do as Christians is rooted in our gratitude to God for the gospel of Christ that has saved our souls and that is changing everything about our lives. You and I should not have to struggle to figure out things that we are thankful for. Now, we might struggle to figure out what words to put it in, but we are a thankful people, or we ought to be. We ought to be. Far too many times we tend to think of gratitude and thanksgiving as their their own separate realities, disconnected from all this other stuff we've been talking about, right? Like, you, like literally, we get to the end of a sermon like this and we're like, I thought you said you were going to preach on Thanksgiving today. As if somehow a Thanksgiving sermon is separate from the gospel. A Thanksgiving sermon is separate from Christ. A Thanksgiving sermon is separate from God. A Thanksgiving sermon is separate from a whole life being transformed by the amazing grace of a merciful creator and savior. But friends, notice that Paul connects them in to everything we do in life. The peace we enjoy within the body of Christ is to be enjoyed from the depths of a truly thankful heart. The songs that we sing to one another and the words that we speak to one another are to be sung and spoken with genuine thankfulness in our hearts to God. And whatever we do, in word or deed, it doesn't matter when, where, how, whatever we do, in word or deed, is to be done while giving thanks to God from the bottoms of our grateful hearts. And I have to ask the question, do you and I have to work this up? Or does it flow from us? because we believe what we've just been seeing in the text of Scripture. And it's not an uncertainty. It's a reality. What do you find in your own mind and heart? I would submit to you one of the reasons that we tend to be um, struggling many times in our lives with, with ingratitude is because, honestly, we are just very, very distracted people. We live our lives thinking about everything but the gospel. Everything but the things we would call the most important things. Rather than doing our jobs as unto the Lord and not unto men, we just do them unto men. And therefore, we struggle to be grateful at work. We we, we struggle in our homes. We struggle on the roads. We we struggle in the bank line. We we, we struggle wherever. We, We struggle to give thanks because at the end of the day, we've divorced our thanksgiving from the gospel. We think thanksgiving is not much more than writing a list of items that God gave me this year. Oh yeah, oh yeah, we got to, we got to purchase a new car this last year, and hey, we're not, we're not in lockdown anymore, and, and hey, hey, the grocery stores had what I wanted, and, 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 and the gas pumps actually pump gas again, and, and what are we doing? We're, we're, we're listing a bunch of stuff, and we wonder why we're having to put on gratitude rather than gratitude flowing from us. 
You see, the Apostle Paul's building a theology of thanksgiving for us here. Thanksgiving wells up in the hearts of those who are in Christ when they remember, when they rehearse, when they think about these realities, when they proclaim them to others, gratitude comes up from them. Why? Because all of this gratitude is rooted in him. What he has done for us. Brothers and sisters, all of this means that the gospel of Jesus Christ completely transforms the selfish, hard-hearted unbeliever into a grateful-hearted follower of Jesus Christ. In other words, it is impossible to be a faithful follower, a true representative of Christ Jesus, without having a genuinely grateful heart to Him. Now, I may be distracted and I may struggle to come up with the words to, to say it at times, but it is impossible to be truly in Christ and to be ungrateful to Christ for what He's done. This is what He's saying, no. If you're in Christ, you are a grateful person. Friends, genuinely grateful hearts will express themselves by giving thanks with grateful lips. This is why we set aside Sundays like this one at our church. Because I don't want us to get past this week and to have wished we would have said thank you to our God publicly in some form or another. When it was like low-hanging, ripe fruit that we could have just taken hold of, and we didn't. I want to foster for us opportunities to praise our God together, to sing his praise and to speak his praise before one another. So we want to give those of us who are here truly grateful to God for who he is, for what he's done, for what he continues to do, for what he's promised to do. We've rehearsed that every time we've gathered in the last few weeks. I want to give us an opportunity to give thanks to him today. So in the next hour, after we've enjoyed some lunch and some dessert, we're going to give you an opportunity. So I don't want to spring it on. Some of you are visiting with us. Stay, stay and enjoy this meal with us. But I don't want to spring it on you. If you want to share your thanks to God, then do so, all right, in this next hour, because he is God. And in Christ, he has ransomed us, reconciled us to himself. Those of us are his. So let's speak his praise thank you for joining us for this episode of come and reason this has been the fifth and final message in a short series on the theme of biblical gratitude please join us again next time as we continue challenging each of us to think rightly and biblically about life and ministry mm-hmm.